listening to CPR News and Colorado Matters. From Cortez to Castle Rock, Alamosa to Aurora, Coloradans tell us healthcare is driving their vote. Well, on the cusp of Super Tuesday, voters share their healthcare stories like this realtor and mom who balks at hospital bills. The amounts that they charge you for things like diapers and wipes, it was actually infuriating. Plus, a man navigating retirement who describes himself as somebody that's concerned about what his healthcare is gonna look like in the twilight of his life. These voters will grill two healthcare experts, one who gives us a rundown of the candidate's positions. Elizabeth Warren has supported Medicare for All, but she's offered a a somewhat more nuanced strategy. And our own John Daly gives us the realities in Colorado. Generally, rural healthcare is more expensive and there's less access. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Healthcare, it's come up over and over again as we've talked with voters statewide about what matters to them in 2020. I count more than a thousand references to healthcare in our election year survey, which you can take for yourself at CPR.org. Well, today, with Super Tuesday looming, a checkup on the presidential candidates' health policies to help you decide. How do the Democratic contenders differ? And what happens to your health care if President Trump is re-elected? We have some experts lined up to answer those questions, including this dude. I'm John Daly, CPR News. That's our health reporter. But first, to some real people. John, no offense. That's okay, Ryan. None taken. Good. You're very real to me, John. But so is Allison Nuanis. She was born and raised in Denver. In 2016, she took a leap of faith and became a self-employed realtor. That meant saying hasta la vista to her company's health plan and buying insurance on Colorado's exchange. So I was on the exchange for a little over two years, and I didn't love the choices. They were really difficult to navigate. She was on a Kaiser plan, pregnant with her son. Her husband and first kid were on a different Kaiser plan, kind of cobbling together. After, you know, giving birth to my son on that plan, um, I was met with very, very large bills, even though we had huge premiums to begin with. Monthly premiums in the range of $1,000 altogether, Allison says. So in 2018, they all switched to a plan that's not actually compliant with the Affordable Care Act because the insurer screens for pre-existing conditions. But it was cheaper. Luckily for my family, we are rather healthy. So what does Allison want to see from a presidential candidate? I don't have a lot of hope, maybe, that things are going to change very quickly. So I'd really like something a little more realistic than, hey, everybody's going to get health care as soon as I'm elected and you're going to, you know, everybody's going to have one plan. And yet, Allison's favorite candidate so far is one who favors Medicare for all. That's Senator Elizabeth Warren. Maybe I have more hope than I like. that I say I do. I I would love to have Medicare for all. Um, I just, I guess I'm not going to hold my breath. Paul Jones is another real-life person. He retired from sales management, mostly in the tech industry, five years ago. I asked him how his healthcare experiences shape his vote. So if I could, just a little piece of background. I took a course in about Obamacare at DU University right after I retired and went on to uh, Medicare So when I became a Medicare user, I was very quick to understand that you're also going to have to have secondary insurance, which becomes your mortgage payment, basically, because it's expensive. 
to cover the things that Medicare doesn't cover, which are quite a few things. Medicare is really just a basic healthcare plan. It's not the kind of insurance that I, my wife and I enjoyed over 45 years of working for employers. So my two-pronged concerns are what could possibly happen to Medicare and or Medicaid by the, the rattling of swords by the Republicans to go after the entitlement programs of which those two qualify. And then my son, who was in Italy, just recently returned to the States and he's in school and really needs affordable health care. So those are the two things that are impacting me right now. What kind of nerd takes a class on Obamacare, Paul? <laughs> uh, somebody that's concerned about uh, what his health care is going to look like over the next couple of years in the twilight of his life. Got it. Um, Not a nerd at all. A good... <laughs> How did you think Obamacare turned out? I don't believe it went far enough. And the reason it didn't, in my opinion, is because Obama knew that he couldn't get what really needed to happen through uh, to finalization. Uh, And I think the dismantling of it um, covertly and overtly by the present administration is a crime. I think it's terrible that they're doing that. And I think if they had a better plan, they should have initiated it. Replace and repeal Obamacare didn't work too well. And so this election year... Who do you have your eyes on? It's really troubling. Um, I believe that socialized medicine is the way we should go, primarily because of my experience in Europe uh, with my son and other places during travel. But I don't think it'll, it, it can be pushed through right now. I think Buttigieg's idea of really trying to shore up Obamacare and make it what it should have been to begin with is probably the best alternative. But by the same token, I don't believe Buttigieg can beat Trump. So it's troubling. I know what I think should happen, but I don't think it will happen. It's interesting to me that you talk about a candidate who wants to shore up the Affordable Care Act and that you didn't leap immediately to the idea of someone who supports Medicare for all. Correct. I think Buttigieg trying to do with what people are used to now and just make it better will be more palatable to the electorate. Well, this is very interesting. So you and Alison Nuanis have... Similar doubts. Allison, does that resonate with you, what you've heard? Yes, it definitely does. I definitely agree with the assessment that Buttigieg and his plan is maybe the more logical step for our country right now. Um, But when I look at the whole candidates and there's, you know, many more issues on the table and um, that's why I guess I lean towards Elizabeth Warren on some other things, Um, although I do believe that Buttigieg's plan is a little bit more palatable for the rest of the country right now and for a lot of people. It's so interesting to me that at the same time, Paul, that you are thinking about the future of healthcare, you're also thinking about the politics, the horse race. You know, so it's not just a question of whose plan do I like, but whose plan do I like and who can beat, in your mind, you think it's important to beat President Trump. Uh, that's a lot to consider, just connected to the issue of healthcare. It is. I think a lot of people feel the same way when you then add in my other thought that Buttigieg can't beat Trump. Probably the only one, in my opinion, is going to be Bloomberg. It makes it even tougher to make a decision. That is Paul Jones of Denver, voter, retiree, dad. Now, I told Paul and Allison, if there's anything they don't get, anything that gets wonky, they can ring the jargon bell. Okay, that's the jargon bell, and we'll get more clarity. Larry Levitt, are you there? I am. Okay, everyone, meet Larry Levitt. 
I have to say, if I could download the content of someone's brain, it would be this guy's. Um, Larry is a bigwig with the Kaiser Family Foundation. That's not Kaiser Permanente. KFF is a nonprofit focused on health policy and reporting. Larry, do me a favor. Read the subjects you work on. This is from your bio. It's on all the subjects we've been talking about. Medicare, Medicaid, uh, the Affordable Care Act, the health insurance marketplace, women's health, global health, everything healthcare. Okay, this is why I'm jealous of his brain. And now a man who needs no introduction because I've already done it, CPR's health reporter and real person, John Daly. Hi again, John. Hi, Ryan. Um, John, we were interested in having you because not all healthcare policy originates in Washington. Colorado, even as we speak, this legislative session is tackling the issue. Why don't we start there? How much of the healthcare picture is tied to the name Polis versus President fill in the blank? Well, you know, uh, Governor Polis, Jared Polis, is the Democrat who's the governor here in Colorado, and he has a lot of say over health care. He's a very ambitious guy, and he and other uh, Democrats uh, at the Capitol want to get a lot done, and they have been able to do stuff, uh, including uh, reinsurance, which is uh, insurance that helps cover the most expensive patients, helps uh, insurers pay for them. Uh, they were able to get that through. That's helped to drive costs down. We have a public option that they're attempting to uh, make happen as well. There's other innovations that Colorado has done. So Colorado, I think, is uh, doing a lot on the healthcare front for sure. However, they can't do everything. They can't do everything. I mean, even the reinsurance program needed the federal government's blessing. So you could see that as a state effort. But Washington had to weigh in. Exactly. And the same would be true if we wanted to uh, import prescription drugs from Canada. We need a federal waiver to do that as well. So, yeah, a lot of things that states might want to do, they need federal help. Okay, that's helpful to know, John. And of course, we don't know exactly whether there will be a public option in Colorado too early in the session to know. Indeed. Yeah. What would you see as the biggest health and health care issues facing Colorado, though, that a president, whoever it is, might address? You know, I think it really gets to what our guests, uh, Allison and Paul, have been talking about. It's cost, right? A lot of people get health care and, and maybe they're OK with the quality. The quality you don't hear so many complaints about. But you do hear a lot of complaints about, can I get in to see a doctor? Do I have that access? Can I afford it? Can I afford the prescription drugs that I need? All those kind of things. So I, I really think costs is the, the big driver. That's interesting just to say that quality is not the driving issue in Colorado. Because so often in the healthcare debate, the plus I hear for our system is generally it's some of the best medicine in the world. If you can afford it. If you can afford it. If you have the coverage that'll help pay for it, if you have uh, your own resources to, to cover the extra costs that you might need to bear or if something comes up unexpected, I think that's the bottom line. Okay. Let's not leave Larry and his uh, fabulous brain hanging. Uh, and I, I want to get more of the national picture. So, of course, Larry, the country's marquee health law is the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. We know that it reduced the uninsured rate in Colorado, partially by expanding Medicaid. But where does the law stand right now? I know it's in the courts. And do talk to us about how many of the current candidates want to maintain it. 
probably the, the most important thing to know about the law right now is it is being threatened in court. Uh, there's a lawsuit that was filed by a number of Republican states that's supported by President Trump uh, that would overturn the ACA entirely. Um, and that law has been working its way through the courts. The Supreme Court is actually considering right now whether to take the case or send it back to the lower courts. Uh, but that is the biggest threat to the ACA right now is the courts. And of the candidates on the Democratic side, so we clearly know how President Trump feels about the Affordable Care Act, of the candidates on the Democratic side, who is saying the ACA is a great foundation, let's keep it? Buttigieg, we've already heard his name. I know that Mike Bloomberg feels this way to some extent. Yeah, there are sort of three camps among the the Democratic candidates. There's this one camp, as you mentioned, who want to build on the ACA by creating a public option that would give people the choice of private insurance or a Medicare-like plan, uh, and also expand the subsidies. So, for example, to people like Allison, who found uh, the marketplace insurance very expensive, the subsidies would be expanded to make the premiums more affordable. The second camp oh, let, let's uh, do this is... Before we get to that second camp, who's in the first camp? Oh, <laughs> This first camp who want to build on the ACA includes Biden and Bloomberg uh, and Buttigieg, as well as Klobuchar and Tom Steyer. Tom Steyer was not on the last debate stage, ultra wealthy Californian and environmentalist. Okay, so if your last name is B, you like the Affordable Care Act, that's clear. What's the next camp? So the next camp is Bernie Sanders, uh, who is clearly associated with the idea of, of Medicare for all. Mm. Uh, and, you know, he has made Medicare for all a priority in this campaign and when he ran previously in 2016. And, uh, and as, you know, as we've heard, uh, Bernie Sanders wrote the damn bill. He wrote the damn bill. Now, uh, how do Sanders and Warren's plans differ? And she's the third category. Yeah, Elizabeth Warren uh, has supported Medicare for All and continues to support Medicare for All, but she's offered a a somewhat more nuanced strategy to get there. Uh, What she's proposing is to start off with a public option that looks very similar to what all those candidates who's last name start with B, uh, as well as a couple others, support. Uh, and she has pledged to pass that public option in the first 100 days of her presidency. Uh, and the idea is to give people uh, a look at how a Medicare-like plan would look and uh, give them a choice. And then she has said she would uh, push for a Medicare for all plan uh, by year three of her of her first term. And, you know, she's very supportive of Medicare for All, uh, but I think it's very possible that what we would end up with uh, with Elizabeth Warren as president is a public option that looks very much like uh, what those other candidates are supporting. Other candidates like Mayor Bloomberg. Uh, Here's what he told me when he was in Denver. Medicare for All doesn't work because about 155 million people in America get their insurance from their employer. They want to keep it. And the hospitals and the doctors want to make sure that's still there as well, because that's what subsidizes the, the people who are getting paid for by Medicaid and Medicare. Now, that's interesting, because when we went to air with that claim that people want to keep their employer-based health insurance, we had a lot of people who said, that's bunk. I don't want that. Paul, did you ever feel tied to a job because of health insurance? Well, I'm old enough to remember when your employer paid all of your health insurance costs, and that's been chipped away at by employers over the years. Um, so, yes, certainly I had times when 
I was raising a family and, and lived in expensive areas in California where I was very tied to being sure that I kept competent insurance. So, yes, for sure. Okay. Now, wasn't, Larry, wasn't the Affordable Care Act supposed to address this, that it made health insurance more portable for people? And is that happening? Uh, the Affordable Care Act did address it to, to some extent. So, for example, uh, I think in Allison's case, if you're self-employed or if you're unemployed, uh, you have the option to go into the health insurance marketplace. Uh, you're guaranteed coverage if you, even if you have a pre-existing condition. Uh, so that portability uh, was addressed by the Affordable Care Act. You know, what wasn't addressed for everyone was the cost, which is obviously very high. Okay. I just want to share a pickle that we're in. We had a voter from the Four Corners area who already cast her primary ballot for Donald Trump, and a last-minute health emergency kept her from joining us, and so we're thinking of her family. But I, I want to share her concern. Her family was on Medicaid briefly, and her grandfather receives care through the VA system. Uh, she has found both difficult to navigate, so she's wary of relying on something like Medicare for All. She doesn't trust government in this realm, and she'd rather vote for a candidate she believes will bolster the economy where she lives uh, so that she can better afford medical expenses. Larry, what sorts of trends in healthcare would you expect to see if President Trump is reelected? Well, so one thing we know about President Trump in healthcare is this lawsuit to overturn the ACA. Uh, And certainly in his first term, President Trump supported efforts, uh, failed efforts, to repeal and replace the the ACA. Uh, You know, the president has promised a plan to replace the ACA on numerous occasions. Uh, We haven't seen that plan yet. Uh, But if you look at the budgets he's proposed, uh, he has proposed to turn the ACA into what's known as a block grant, you know, to turn it over to the states and relax a lot of the rules, uh, insurance rules in the Affordable Care Act. Um, And he's also proposed to cap funding for Medicaid uh, and reduce that funding over time by quite a bit. Now, there are a few ideas that I hear somewhat regularly from Republicans. I think, for instance, of Mark Waller. He's a former state lawmaker, now an El Paso County commissioner. I think we have to open up the free market, being able to sell health care packages across state lines. Health care across state lines. So that if I felt like it, I could buy a plan in Wyoming or because I'm craving warmer weather, Hawaii. Um, Is that being talked about by a lot of Republicans this election cycle? And what do you make of the idea of selling across state lines? Yeah, this idea of, of selling insurance across state lines has been around for a while and, and uh, been a favorite idea of Republicans, in, including President Trump. You know, one challenge with it is that uh, insurance typically comes with networks of doctors and hospitals that, that you can visit. And if you live in Colorado and you try to buy an insurance plan in Wyoming, uh, it's not going to help you very much if you got to go to the doctor hospital in Wyoming. So that's one big challenge. Um, You know, the other is that insurance is already in some sense sold across state lines. I mean, if you look at the big insurance companies like United Healthcare, like Anthem, those are national companies that sell in many states. They just have to get licensed in each state. Uh, And what this idea is talking about is letting someone buy a plan that's not licensed, let's say in Colorado, but is instead licensed in another state. And it's really an effort to kind of get around some of the state regulations. But even where it's been allowed to some extent in federal law, it's never been used. 
And that's the jargon bell. Allison would like to know where the term single payer fits into all of this. She has heard it used in the past, but isn't quite sure where it fits into the debate now. Larry? Single payer was what we used to call Medicare for all. Uh, You know, it's the idea that Uh. there is one government-run insurance plan. And it started to be called Medicare for all because that just sounds better. People like Medicare. People have no idea what what single payer means. Uh, And I think it's reasonable to call it socialized insurance because the government is running the insurance system, Uh, but it's really not socialized medicine because doctors and hospitals uh, are still private. So Allison, you you just missed, and so did I, by the way, the subtle change, or not so subtle, that single payer became Medicare Medicare. for all. It was a branding thing. I was always curious, and I thought it might be the same thing, but the the single payer term kind of faded away. But there, there is a huge difference there in, in terms of what we get for it, because the single-payer idea is, is like Medicare in that I've seen those big hospital bills too, but Medicare only agreed to pay the hospital so much for my care. And in a single-payer system, you can negotiate with the hospitals and negotiate with the drug companies and get the prices down. And that's one of the biggest issues in, in U.S. healthcare. We pay double what every other country pays because we don't have any system that allows us to negotiate the prices down. Ne- and a single-payer system would allow us to do that. Larry, is that Th- about that's right? That's absolutely right. Yeah, go ahead. That's absolutely right. And, you know, we also have much higher administrative costs because of all these private insurance plans and the profits uh, that those plans have. And, uh, you know, and hospitals have to have these huge billing departments. Doctors' offices have to have, uh, you know, people to bill all the insurance companies. Uh, a lot of that would go away under a, a Medicare for All plan. Well, speaking of negotiation, you know, one thing we hear a lot of on the campaign trail, I heard this from... Uh, Mayor Bloomberg, for instance, is that the federal government cannot currently negotiate drug prices. That sounds like such a silly law, Larry. (laughs) Um, Probably not the only law that seems silly. Uh, (laughs) So this was put into place when a drug benefit was added to Medicare in the early 2000s. Before that, people on Medicare didn't have coverage for prescription drugs. Uh, Under President Bush, a a drug benefit was added to Medicare, but the only way it got through Congress was with this prohibition on the government negotiating the, the price of drugs. So again, this is unlike every other country in the world. I mean, every other country in the world uh, negotiates or controls the prices of drugs, and the prices are a lot lower in those places. Today, ahead of Super Tuesday, we've brought two voters and two healthcare experts together. The experts include our own John Daly, CPR's health reporter, and Larry Levitt of the Kaiser Family Foundation. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that researches health policy. The Colorado voters on our panel, retiree and dad Paul Jones, and realtor and mom Allison Nuanis. Allison likes the idea of Medicare for all, but she doubts it's politically feasible. I asked Larry if her doubt is justified. I mean, I think Allison's skepticism is is warranted. Um, you know, Medicare for all is currently pretty popular among the public. Most people do support it, and certainly an overwhelming majority of Democrats uh, support it. Wait, are you are you uh, saying re- that it has some support among Republicans? 
Medicare for All does have some support among Republican voters. It has no support among Republican politicians. And frankly, even, uh, you know, most Democratic politicians in the Senate, in the House of Representatives are not supporting Medicare for All at this point. So it's hard to imagine a scenario in which it could pass, uh, even with Bernie Sanders as president. Even if Bernie Sanders had a completely Democratic Congress, you're saying even then it would face an uphill battle because Democrats are not united on this. I mean, we saw that from Michael Bennett, the Colorado senator, uh, you know, who, who bowed out of the race. That's right. And, and you know, the healthcare industry uh, is uniformly opposed to it and opposed uh, very strongly. Uh, I mean, the, the number of healthcare industry lobbyists that would be setting up shop in, in Washington to oppose a Medicare for all bill if Bernie Sanders were president would just be beyond the imagination. So, you know, it could happen someday, but it doesn't seem like the political stars are aligned uh, quite yet. Paul, I haven't heard your voice for a while and I miss it. So tell, what, what's going through your what's going through your head? I wish you, I wish you talked to my wife. Um, <laughs> I think there's a, a couple of points that uh, that Larry made that I'd like to hone in on. One is we we've kind of latched onto the Medicare for all as a slogan, but that's in my experience is different than socialized medicine. Um, I'm in Medicare, and Medicare doesn't pay for everything. I still have to have insurance to be able to pay for the things that that my wife and I need. So the, the money lobbies that you talked about, the insurance industry and the hospital industry and the AMA are the ones that are driving the, the politicians not to do the right thing. I mean, we're the, we're the only nations that are considered to be the, uh, the wealthier nations in the world, Canada, all of Europe, the EU, that doesn't have socialized medicine. So we're not the only ones that are smart in the world. So I, I think it's not going to happen, and I think it's unfortunate because there's a lot of people in this country that are going uncared for because of money. Well, I'm so glad you brought this up, Paul, um, because, Larry, this idea of socialized medicine, no one in the United States currently running uh, for a major party is talking about that, right? One. And two, we also hear the term thrown about socialism. Uh, reflect on that for me a little bit. Yeah, and, and you're right. None, none of the candidates are really advocating true socialized medicine. Which you know, means what? So, for example, the, uh, uh, the United Kingdom has the National Health Service, which means that you get care in government hospitals and you get care from doctors that are employed by the government. Even Bernie Sanders, with his Medicare for All plan, is not proposing that. Doctors would still be in private practice. Hospitals would still be privately owned or, or nonprofit. Uh, I mean, you can think of Medicare for All as socialized insurance, but not huh. really uh, socialized medicine. Okay. And um, maybe this is too big a question, uh, given your expertise, but can you contrast socialized medicine versus socialism, which is that term we hear bandied about. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's not surprising that the term is bandied about during this campaign because Bernie Sanders uh, does identify as a, as a democratic socialist. Um, and, you know, I think there are uh, many different definitions of the term. Typically, 
democratic socialism, as as Bernie Sanders uh, espouses it, you know, involves a much bigger role for government uh, and a, uh, a a social safety net or social insurance system, like for healthcare or childcare uh, or or education. Uh, you know, this is very different from the government uh, owning all of private industry. You know, nationalizing the banks, nationalizing uh, oil companies, uh, which is what I think some people think of as as socialism or even communism. You were very kind to wade in to that for me. It's not easy. Okay, John Daly, as our healthcare reporter, I know you've talked to voters, uh, and I suppose maybe even non-voters all over Colorado. How do the healthcare issues of rural Colorado differ from those of urban? I'm interested in how that's playing into 2020 as well. So generally, uh, rural healthcare is more expensive and there's less access, right? And, and those two things are connected. We know that uh, parts of Colorado have traditionally had some of the most expensive health insurance in the entire country, uh, in the mountains and the, and the western slope. And part of that is because we have parts of Colorado where there's only one insurer, 22 counties have one insurer, Anthem, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and no other alternative. And that's up from 14 the prior year. So uh, it's challenging for insurers to do business, to make money in areas that aren't well populated. And uh, we know that in urban areas like the Front Range, you generally have more choices, and that helps drive the cost down. And because of all that, it's really hard to get access in some parts of the state. You hear stories of uh, Coloradans who have to drive for hours just to get to a hospital or they don't have a, a clinic nearby. And, and so especially if you have some major emergency, that's a big problem. And this, uh, I'm sure Larry could confirm this, this is really true around the country. Rural health care often is uh, more expensive and, and harder to get. Yeah, Larry, I mean, I think that in some ways we're talking about two very different kinds of healthcare concerns if you live in a city versus living in a rural area. Uh, it's absolutely true. Uh, and in rural areas, it's not just, uh, you know, that you often only have one insurance plan to choose from, but you often only have one hospital or one doctor practice to choose from as well. And, you know, not all of the basic laws of economics apply to healthcare uh, all the time, but certainly some do. And when you have a monopoly hospital, uh, it's often going to be much more expensive than if you have uh competing hospitals that, that drive down the price. And that's where the idea of Medicare for All or, or a public option has the potential to drive down costs, you know, where the government would be exercising leverage and offering a more affordable option. And are the candidates talking about that specifically, like the needs of rural areas? Uh, certainly some have. Uh, for example, Buttigieg has talked about a public option offering more affordable coverage um, in rural areas and has talked about uh, even boosting payments where there's kind of insufficient health care capacity in rural areas. The uninsured rate tends to be higher in these rural areas. So these ideas that the Democrats are talking about definitely have some potential to improve health care for people who live in those communities. Well, I want to thank all of you for being with us. I really appreciate your sharing your stories and your insight. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Colorado voters Paul Jones and Allison Nuanis, along with CPR health reporter John Daly and health policy expert Larry Levitt of the Kaiser Family Foundation, our panelists for a deep dive on health care and the 2020 election. That's with Super Tuesday just around the corner. (music) 
presidential candidates have been all over Colorado in recent days, but 2020 enthusiasm isn't shared by everyone in this state. As part of our Voter Profile series, CPR's Taylor Allen introduces us to a woman who plans to sit this election out. Because I don't see that our political system is productive. I think it's destructive. Laura O'Toole lives in Denver, and she hasn't voted since the 2000 presidential election. Before that, she voted once for Ronald Reagan. I no longer trust the political system. She lost her faith because of an issue that is dear to her, homelessness. She said she used to go to the mayor's office and volunteer at advocacy groups, but she doesn't feel like they do anything substantial to help. There are people who are homeless who have abilities that we know nothing about. And we don't know because we don't talk to them. O'Toole lives in her one-bedroom apartment in downtown Denver. Her housing is unstable, though. She's been on the streets twice previously in her life. These are just people. And you could become homeless at any time. Her idea is to have an office space where homeless people can come for help to get a job. To her, that's the root of the issue, employment. They are not useless. They are not helpless. They are frustrated. They have nowhere to go. Nothing to do. When it comes to politics, people might assume she's left-leaning because she's a person of color, Chinese and Puerto Rican, and low income. But O'Toole is far from it. She agrees with many conservatives that getting people to work is the best way to help them. Putting them to work should be the goal, not housing them. In O'Toole's eyes, people are not incentivized to work because they will lose their benefits if they make too much money. She gets benefits herself. She lives in Section 8 housing. She can't work because of her arthritis. She relies on her late husband's Social Security and pension. If I could work now, I'd be working. I would work because I love working. I used to pull 100-pound boxes off of trucks, okay? (laughs) I mean, I worked. Feeling stuck, she now feels she is only able to help by keeping an eye on homeless people in her neighborhood and offering food when she can. Voting, she says, is not the answer. I'm Taylor Allen, CPR News. Republicans at the state capitol have few tools to stop Democrats from carrying out their agenda. The GOP is in the minority in both chambers, and most bills only need a simple majority to pass. But Republicans have hit on one tactic that gives them a bit more pull. Call it a procedural filibuster. CPR's Benta Berkland explains. Republicans really started using the stalling maneuver last year because they felt Democrats were rushing bills through the legislature. State law requires that if a lawmaker wants a bill to be read out loud when it comes up on the floor, it is, no matter how long that takes. Respectfully request that Senate Bill 99 be read at length. Senator Cook. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I also move House Bill 1172 and ask that it be read at length. Mr. Minority Leader. I object to the motion and ask that the journal for Monday be read at length. Because the legislative session is only four months long, a stalling tactic like this isn't just a gimmick. It can impact how much work gets done. So far this session, Republicans haven't used it much. But the threat of bill readings has still impacted how some lawmakers go about their work. I've changed the way that I organize the calendar for how we're going to do work based on the length of bills in case somebody asks them to be read at length. That's Democratic House Majority Leader Alec Garnett. 
Most bills are only a few pages long, but some can run hundreds of pages. Often those are uncontroversial cleanup bills to streamline the language and state laws. Garnett says he's asked lawmakers to put those bills aside this year. Because there's no real need at the moment for us to be making those changes because they could be weaponized at any moment. It was actually one of those non-controversial cleanup bills that brought the state Senate to a standstill last year. Reading it out loud would have taken staff a week. So to speed up the process, the Democratic Senate president set up a bank of five computers to read the bill's text at 650 words per minute. If that wasn't strange enough... Republicans then took the highly unusual step of suing. A Denver district judge sided with the GOP and said a bill reading must be understandable. Democrats have appealed, but for now, high-speed, unintelligible readings are off-limits. Republican Senator Owen Hill of Colorado Springs says this bill reading tactic gives the minority party important leverage. I think people always wish it's an easier path to get their own way. And Hill thinks the lawsuit has led Democrats to be more inclusive. Maybe it's Pavlovian and maybe it's a recognition that there isn't a monopoly on the truth out here, despite the fact that one party controls all the branches of government. Democrats have blasted the GOP move as obstructionist. And some, like Democratic Senator Jeff Bridges of Greenwood Village, say it hasn't impacted how he does things. It's not something I even think about. The minority has the right to try and extend the process, and you know that's one of the few ways they can exert some control over what happens. And they did that, and you know we did what we had to do, they did what they had to do, and at the end of the day, we got a lot of good work done for the people of Colorado. But Democratic Representative Sonia Hawkes-Lewis of Boulder County says she's definitely worked harder to get more Republican support for her legislation, and she says she's not alone. The fact that your bill will have a less likely chance of being read (laughs) out loud if you have bipartisanship sponsorship, I think, is, is a good thing. And as the session goes on and more polarizing bills are introduced, both parties expect bill readings to be used more frequently. That may come up soon with a measure to repeal the death penalty. Republican Representative Dave Williams from Colorado Springs says he'll use any means necessary to try to force Democrats to send the repeal question to voters. You know, if I have to utilize all the time that I can in order for the Democrats to think twice before going against the will of the people, then then I will. So in the coming weeks, we could be hearing a lot more of this. There's been a request to read House Bill 1161 at length. Mr. Randall, please read the bill. Concerning the allocation of private activity bonds in connection with limiting I'm the Berkland, CPR News. The allocation related functions of the committee are limiting the capital the direct allocation. When we come back, shaping the Star Wars saga through music. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Addiction, illness, physical impairment. They can hit all of us and the people we love. I'm Vic Vela, your weekend host here on CPR News, and now I'm the host of a new recovery podcast called Back From Broken. I'm a recovering drug addict, and on this podcast, I talk to people who've made their own comebacks. One thing I learned in recovery is that I need to just cut myself some slack. I'm a human being, and I need to embrace that fully. Listen and subscribe now at backfrombroken.org or wherever you get your podcasts. 
What would Star Wars be without the Oscar-winning orchestrations of John Williams? Well, the Colorado Symphony performs the score to Return of the Jedi this weekend live as the film is screened at Betcher Concert Hall. The symphony's music director, Brett Mitchell, spoke with CPR Classical's Carla Walker and explained a key Star Wars device, themes associated with individual characters. This is really the way that John Williams, who created by now all nine of the Star Wars scores, this was a technique that Mr. Williams really took from, yes, earlier film composers, but really from the likes of people like Richard Wagner. When Wagner was writing his operas, particularly The Ring Cycle, it was all about telling the story through these various little themes, which Wagner called leitmotifs. The dictionary defines leitmotif as a recurring musical theme associated with a particular person or idea. So Mr. Williams, when he was writing Star Wars, will just play a few of these classic themes for you very quickly. Um, There's the main theme, which we all know, which doubles as Luke Skywalker's theme. We all know that one. And then there's Darth Vader's theme, also known as the Imperial March. And then there's the Force theme. And then there's a really beautiful theme that also shows up for the first time in Empire Strikes Back for the relationship between Han Solo and Princess Leia. Mr. Williams takes these various themes, leitmotifs, and he weaves them together to tell the story musically. If you tried to write a theme that was a big, long, you know, 8, 10, 12 bar melody or something like that, might be a great tune. But what makes a great leitmotif is that it's instantly recognizable. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about the genius of John Williams for a second, even if I don't play anything after these first three notes, you know what this theme is. Right. Because the whole point is, is it instantly recognizable? Could yeah. you could you hear it from, even when you hear, in the Star Wars score, you know, right. you and either Williams <laughs> does it or he subverts your expectations. But that's why these themes are so powerful is that they're just instantly recognizable. And as Brett Mitchell mentioned, Williams took inspiration from other film and classical composers. Well, back in 2016, CPR's Carla Walker joined me to talk about that aspect of this Oscar-winning movie music. It all, of course, starts with this. The main theme from the original Star Wars, all the soundtracks for all seven Star Wars movies were written by John Williams. And Ryan, he has continued to build on these original themes and create new ones. But when you listen to the soundtracks, especially from the first three movies, they are full of 
references to classical pieces, and they have provided all sorts of fun for people like me, music geeks like me, who try to find their classical cousins. <laughs> so the theme that we just heard, that original theme to Star Wars, it is seared into our brains, right? But if you are a movie buff from the 30s and 40s, you might remember a movie called King's Row, which sounds quite similar. Yeah, that's uncanny, isn't it? It's similar. It's not note for note, but it's very, very similar in its essence. And that was written by the great film score composer Eric Kornbold. Why would John Williams do this? You know, basically he was asked to. Um, George Lucas hired John Williams on the advice of his friend Steven Spielberg right after Spielberg and Williams had made Jaws. And Lucas told Williams, he said, Star Wars is an old-fashioned movie and I want a big, grand orchestral score like Korngold used to write for these big swashbuckling movies like Robin Hood or Seahawk, these big movies from the 30s and 40s. And that's the sound that he wanted. In fact, Lucas, when he was writing Star Wars, he was listening to classical music and he put together a dummy score with these pieces all in order. So when he and Williams sat down, he played the pieces for Williams and he said, this is what I want. Can you give me this? He was very specific. And how is that not plagiarizing someone else's work? Well, in classical music, Ryan, there is a long tradition of composers borrowing from each other. You know, the idea of copyright didn't exist for musicians basically until about the 1920s. So many people borrowed from other composers. Brahms, Mahler, all borrowed from Beethoven. So pieces that are written after about 1923 are protected by copyright. And some of the pieces that Williams used are before then. But some of them come after the copyright laws as well. But as far as I know, if anyone has ever, if any of these estates of these composers, uh, if they've sued John Williams, it's never been reported on. But I want to make clear that while Williams is standing on the shoulders of giants, he is a giant himself. He, He took these themes and they're very small. They're snippets. And then he built them into something completely different. Why don't we hear another example? Sure. This is from uh, another recognizable movie, The Empire Strikes Back. Nothing good can happen when that theme is playing. (laughs) Exactly. It says war, doesn't it? It It does. Drums. Well, it's no coincidence that it sounds a little like Mars, the bringer of war from the planets by Gustav Holst. Very menacing, right? It, it is indeed. <laughs> Sounds very similar, but it's also this Darth Vader theme, so it's infused with that, but it's also infused with what's called the funeral march from a Chopin piano sonata. a bit slower, but if you if yeah. you speed that up, you basically have that theme. Exactly. From Darth Vader. Exactly. I think it's safe to say that Star Wars would not 
be what it is, what it was without the music. Absolutely. There's this great video that you can Google, and it's the scene from the throne room in the in the final uh, the final scene of the first movie where uh, Han and Chewbacca and Luke Skywalker are walking down the center aisle to get their award from Princess Leia. But the video is without the music. So it's just <laughs> so it's just them walking and their facial expressions and it's so incredibly cheesy. So you know, John Williams is a giant in his own right. Thanks Carla for being with us. Thank you. Carla Walker is both a Star Wars fan and host on CPR Classical. We spoke in 2016 about the music that inspired Oscar-winning composer John Williams. And yes, you can still Google that throne room scene without the music to see for yourself what a difference it makes. We have posted videos of the Colorado Symphony's Brett Mitchell talking about music from the original Star Wars trilogy at CPR.org. The symphony performs the score to Return of the Jedi live on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as the film screens at Betcher Concert Hall. Yoda's theme, this is Colorado Matters, this has been on CPR News. (laughs) 